Hello, doctor. Name, continue, yesterday, tomorrow. I am completely operational, and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. The incomparable. Number 432. November 2018. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And what better way to follow our long-awaited 50th anniversary deep dive into the classic, one of the classics of cinema, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, than to do, of course, the most logical thing you could possibly do for the next episode, which is Peter Hyams, not generally considered the greatest movie of all time, sequel to 2001, which John Cooper has not seen, 2010 from 1984. Yes, that's right. A movie from one year released in a different year. Uh, but we are going to talk about Peter Hyams' movie, which I got to say, I'm just going to say it up front. Um, I kind of like it. So it's not 2001, but I kind of like it. And uh, I, going back and reading some reviews of it, there were several reviews that basically were like, okay, it's not 2001, but on its own terms. Anyway, we'll get there. I'm joined by four people who watched this movie as well. David J. Lore is one of them. Hello. Hello. I'm I'm sorry I can't do that, Jason. Mm-hmm. But, oh, wait, no, no. No, wait a second. No, it's... it's Wrong uh, movie. Wrong uh, movie. Helene Wecker is also here. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Moises Chuyan is here. Hi, Moises. You must leave within two days. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Joe Rosenstiel, I don't know what's going to happen in this episode, but I bet it's going to be something wonderful. I'm completely operational, and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, so yeah, basically, um, we, we should just say it up front. A lot of people really don't like that this movie exists because 2001 <laughs> is a is a classic for lots of reasons, and um. But the fact is, that was a joint venture between Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, Arthur C. Clarke decided he wanted to write a sequel, uh, just a, a novel, a sequel to the movie as a novel. And he did. And it was a bestseller. And I, I have read that book like 10 times. I love that book. Um, and, of course, inevitably what happens after a book is a bestseller and it's a sequel to a book popular movie is that um somebody writes a check and they make a movie of the sequel and so here we are with 2010 the year we make contact which is a dumb name and i don't like it um and it is the story of roy scheider playing played by a different actor in 2001 who is basically sent out with a russian team and a couple other americans to go to jupiter and figure out what went wrong with the discovery and how nine thousand and uh they have some adventures along the way and uh one of or one of one of the planets in our solar system does not survive the movie <laughs> but um so uh, you know i watched this in the theater in 1984 when it came out and i remember liking it but i i am not sure i had seen i think i had seen 2001 on tv or something but i'd read the book a half a dozen times right. or whatever and um and I remember liking the movie, although being disappointed because I love the book so much and it's an adaptation and they leave things out and they add things in. And I, I to this day, can't really watch this movie without noting all the things that they changed. Um, I think 
there are a lot of good things in this movie, but I'm not sure I agree with any of the changes that Peter Himes made to the novel. So, uh, <laughs> oh, well, there's a whole book you can read, which is literally just a transcript of the emails that um, Peter Himes and Arthur C. Clarke sent back and forth while this movie was in production. Um, so you can see all those decisions being made. And no, wait, don't. No, it's too late. They already made the movie. Um, <laughs> how, how did, uh, you know, just getting started, how did, how did everybody come to this movie? And did you have a visceral reaction to it about 2001 or, were you, or, or, or did you not care enough about 2001 for it to matter? Lean, how about you? Um, well, I was basically too young to have seen 2001 when yeah. this came out. And uh, so I was nine when this was released in 1984. And I think I had seen 2001. It must have been on, you know, for like in a four hour slot on NBC on a Sunday night or something. Sure. And I'd seen the, the ending. Somehow I'd seen the ending a number of times. <laughs> and I, you know, it, at, at that point by 1984, it was all in the pop culture and I knew the references and and somehow I knew it but I think the first time I don't think I saw it in the theater not, uh, 2010 I saw it on VHS we got a VHS copy and it became one of my just go-to movies I must have seen it at least a dozen times probably wow. closer to 20 um, I knew every beat of that movie um, and it, I never really saw 2001 until I was, I want to say, like in high school. Um, so for me, like this is the movie. And I know that, that that makes a lot of people very, it would be very upset. And usually I'm the one who's like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't recognize the sequel. There was no sequel. Um, but for me, this, this was my movie and I, I really like it. All right. All right. Very, very interesting. David, what's your, um, Helene's slightly younger than you and I are, but uh, what was your relationship with this? I'm not a fan of the original. I've seen it several times now and I'm just like, yeah, it's cool. You know, the making of it is really cool. The reading the book on the making of it is really cool. I'm bored to tears by the actual movie. So this, I actually like this because it has a plot and it, does stuff and things happen and it it like it asks a question and solves the question and you're like okay um so yeah we saw this in the theater and i was just like oh yeah that's an actual movie cool an um, actual movie an actual movie joe rosenstiel what's your relationship with this movie uh i was too young to have seen either of these movies in what? uh theaters yeah. <laughs> uh, i mean i was i was two when uh, 2010 came out uh, but uh i i saw it in the 90s it was on heavy tv rotation back when cable companies would uh get libraries of content in order to stuff their channels full of things so that they would have things to air mm. uh, and so i believe i saw it several times in rotation on like tnt or sci-fi mm -hmm. or something like that but uh it's uh i i have an artistic appreciation for the first one but but like David said, I, 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 uh, you, you better have something else like a second screen experience that you're doing when you're watching it. Uh, but, uh, 2010, I feel is a much more convent, uh, conventional and accessible movie. Totally. Um, so it, it is easier to just sit there and watch it, even though it's not the best filmmaking experience you're, you're going to have. Uh, I, I, uh, really appreciated it for that. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to be on this one, not, uh, the 2001 episode, um, 
not not that I not to disparage anyone who was on the 2001 episode. Yeah, which was literally just me and Jason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I just uh, it, it's not it's not a movie that I that speaks to me and also I find some of the uh, extreme fans of 2001 to be intolerable and I know they won't be listening to this yeah, one. No, so. they're not going to they're, they're it's, this is the safest of safe spaces cuz they are not listening to this episode at all. Uh Moises, your your feelings about uh, 2010? This is a movie that, as much as I enjoy 2001, consider myself a fan, uh, to echo what Joe just said, I, I do find some extreme 2001 fans, one might say stands, uh, to be a bit insufferable uh, because loving that movie for some people is so much about how much smarter you are than other people and how much better you are at doing acid than other people. For me, 2010 gets a bad rap in that, oh, it's the sequel that didn't need to exist. Well, lots of things didn't need to exist. Um, plenty of things don't need to exist. And and to me, that's something of a, of a facile argument. And the that I that we'll get more into, I'm sure, that I like about 2010 is that as much as some people decry it for underlining and making clear things that 2001 left vague, it attacks the subject matter from a more straight ahead plot driven, not not as much of, of, a, of an experiential uh, kind of cinematic experience. So you have something more resembling a conventional narrative that gets to play with some of the the, the biggest ideas that Arthur Clarke was getting at in collaborating with Kubrick on 2001 uh, and which continued on through the other two books in the series, which, oh God, if we're talking about things that don't need to exist, I guess books by the guy who created the thing doesn't need to exist. Doesn't, you know, those, those should just be erased from history. I I think we, so we've spent a little time talking about 2001 here. I think that the, the key is um, this movie, it's a lot to live up to. It's a lot to live up to a movie that, that was so exalted and so famous. And, um, you know, but Arthur C. Clarke wanted to tell another story and he, he felt like in his mind, he knew the answers to a bunch of the questions, maybe not the questions that Kubrick thought they were or tried to answer or didn't try to answer, but he had his own thoughts about that world. And the funny thing is you can't really read the novel of 2001 and then read 2010 because, uh, this right. is a, this is a sequel to the movie, not the novel, because the novel takes place around Saturn and then Kubrick changed it <laughs> to Jupiter. <laughs> And so the novel is totally, of 2001, totally doesn't match up. But um, he wanted to continue that story, and so he did. And it hangs over this movie especially, because this is the this is the movie following the famous movie. And, you know, it it, it is not, I, I would say, if whether you like 2001 or you don't like 2001, um, this is a completely different movie. And you can not watch it, or you can watch it and just accept that it's different. It is not trying to do the same things, which I think is fine. It does not try to ape... Uh, I guess that's kind of a joke for 2001. The, it, it is not waka, trying to, waka, waka. To, to ape the other movie, right? It's it's it just uh, uh, clearly Peter Himes is like that's not going to happen. There are a couple of places where there's a hat tip to 2001, I think stylistically, but for the most part, um, he's making a sci-fi thriller uh, with a with a message and. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, it is going from poetry to prose, and I'm okay with that. Like, everybody just has to accept that's what this movie is. It's not 2001. It's not an attempt. Quite honestly, I think that if somebody had tried to make an art, arty uh, response to 2001 out of Arthur C. Clarke's novel, it would have, we would not be talking about it, because it mm-hmm. would have been really boring and awful, because it would not have been 2001. But that's not what happens, and uh, 
and this this movie you know again i think it maybe doesn't get as much credit as it should because it is the sequel to 2001 who would do such a thing as to make a sequel to such a sacred thing but um but it's a it's a it's a great book and it's a fun movie so uh you know i guess we should talk about it seems like a good idea at the very beginning there is a recap where it's like previously in 2001 right yes (laughs) 2001 the golden book children's version yeah the the part that bugs me about that and i notice it every time is the way the words come out it's done as a Mm -hmm. readout but the words come out as if someone is speaking them they come out in a spoken rhythm, every single mm-hmm. word. And, and But there is no narration. It's just the words on the screen. But they, 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 it's like they timed them all to a narration and then took the narration out. It's super weird. I don't know what I they appreciate doing. that. It, it feels like being told a story. It's here is the story that you need to know. And honestly, when I was watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is how I could watch it back then without having seen <laughs> 2001 right. was you get like you said the previous lease it it actually has more plot than 2001 <laughs> it's 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 a Somehow. narrative it's linear right. it, it's it's this happened and then this happened and then this happened and there's no apes right there's the apes right. are just no we don't see any <laughs> previously in 2001 humans evolved on planet earth <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have been actually kind of funny meanwhile <laughs> yeah and then there was an intermission um no that <laughs> I, I i agree with you jason with the with the is it something about the way that that prints out on screen that uh never set right no. with me um if, if even if the letters had just uh if whole words had faded on or lines of text had faded on or something like that um or uh you know not a crawl of course um not with that density of information but uh, something um uh, more artistic than uh we we saw other movies where letters just go on screen one at a time mm-hmm. and uh only only at uh moments and, and at intervals that make sense for our dramatic pause that we want to have <laughs> it's, it's just weird because it's supposed to look like it's it's supposed to be like a a briefing dossier or something like right. this is what somebody has access to that's giving them information um because it's all styled uh, as if it was a, a, a an internal uh, space agency document but uh, it it doesn't but then it's printed out that? at the rate of <laughs> as if it's like the op- it's like closed captioning without the dialogue or something i don't know yeah or it feels it feels like a russian bootleg sequel to 2001 with that as the beginning framing device until you actually see what the aesthetic of the movie is um instead it, it just it, it comes off as uh, it it doesn't it, it gets the job done but it doesn't fit as neatly as i think they intended it to yeah hmm. the people in this movie is one of the incredible things <laughs> there are human beings in this one <laughs> yeah <laughs> when i was watching it before and i was i was watching it with with patrick and and he said Wow, this makes up for the fact that there's nobody in the first one. This has all the talking. Yeah, there's, said, yes, there's characters. That's pretty much in, it. In this one. And, and I said, this has every character actor working in 1984. Yeah, so so Roy Scheider is, is Hayward Floyd. John Lithgow is Kerno. Um, uh, Helen Mirren is the captain of the Alexei Leonov. She is amazing, Helen I Mirren. She, she is great. I, 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 it's like, oh my God, it's Helen Mirren. And then she's just grumpy with a Russian accent for the whole thing. But um, <laughs> it's really it's really good. Uh, they they bring back here Delay as Dave Bowman in various different forms, sort of like he's hopping around inside that thing we saw at the end of 2001, which I think is a nice nod to the fact that, that it it gets really weird at the end there. Um, you know, who else is in this? Ilya Baskin is has a just this 
thousand watt smile as one of the one of the cosmonauts. Um, Dana Elkar. Dana, Dana Elkar, MacGyver's Dana friend, is uh, the is the head of the Russian <laughs> space program essentially, and talks to Roy Scheider and explains in the first scene, which is at the very large telescope array in New Mexico, except it's by the ocean in this movie uh, because that's because they're dolphins at Roy <laughs> Scheider's house. Uh, but he. Ex- he explains that the uh, that the discovery's orbit is going to decay, and that sets up the the premise of this mo- movie, which is the premise of the book, which is the Americans have to hitch a ride on a Russian spaceship. By the way, that's literally what is happening right now in terms of our access to the International Space Station is Americans hitching rides with Russian rockets. Uh, so that's a pretty funny little thing, and that sets up the scenario where they basically the three Americans are sent on the Alexei Leonov to. Uh, figure out what's going on at Discovery before it crashes into Io. Now, now, Jason, for for the kids out there that may not be sold on this just yet, if they're fans of Critical Role, uh, they should note yes. that Floyd's son is played by Critical Role's Talison Jaffe. Oh, there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it, look, if if there's one reason to watch <laughs> this movie, it's for the kid that's in it for five minutes playing with dolphins. Yeah, but he's well. He also um he he also rides his his little uh little bike down the hill while his dad is jogging, and they have a whole conversation that's shot from like a half a mile away and obviously it's 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 dubbed but they also shot this conversation it's actually i love that shot that's a very early in the movie before he goes into space he's talking to his son about how he's going and they're going down a very very steep hill and we're watching them from far away as they have this conversation and and i liked the sound design of the car going ahead of them that's that's made to sound like like a future car like a future car of some of some kind. Uh, also, that's right about the time where we see that he's um, typing on an Apple IIc at the beach because <laughs> it's the future. I remember seeing that. That was like, wow! Someday we're going to be able to take computers to the beach. And I'm like, why in God's name would I take my computer yeah. to the beach? It's just glare and and getting sand and everything. My my son was looking at this, going, "Why are the computers so big?" Eight years ago, I said, yeah. "This was like thirty four years ago." Yeah. That, that that is not the, before we got started we talked about this a little bit that is not the strongest point of the movie um the the 2001 stanley kubrick went to a lot of effort to make the the technology seem kind of strange and timeless and did things like rear project slides onto flat screens in order to create this futuristic flat screen technology that one day might exist and this movie is sort of like it's an apple 2c it's just a bunch of crt monitors it's not there there's not a lot of effort to kind of extrapolate this is not the tom Selleck narrated AT&T you will commercial where it's like you will have a futuristic fax machine at the beach it's like no you'll literally have a, a computer that already exists in 1984 at the beach which is I, I guess he, I guess the future Apple II C's have a big battery hey, Wood Floyd's just a super huge or, hipster he's I guess I guess so that must that must be it he, he, he lost a he lost a bet um, but anyway so it's a great it's a great cast um, the it, it is at, at the height of the Cold War that is the story that Peter Hyams wants to tell it's the story that Arthur C. Clarke wanted to tell which is of putting the russians and the americans together these two uh, nations that have uh, from the very beginning been exploring space and having them have to work together on this on this trip to jupiter and back and uh uh, there's a that, there's a nice scene with Dana Elkar where he shows up at at the giant uh, tele, radio telescope array and talks to Roy Scheider and they do their two minutes of uh, of absolute truth where Dana Elkar says uh, you're you're uh, we're our governments are enemies we're not um, 
you know, we, we Russians, it'll be fine. Russians helping a bunch of poor Americans who can't get into space. It'll be great. Uh, it, have you checked the orbit? And, and he's like super disturbed because he hasn't checked the orbit. And he goes to a, a very big computer with a CRT in order to check the orbit later. Um, and then, you know, and then Hayward he Floyd uh, uh, hops to Washington, D.C., where he he talks to his old boss and or the guy who used to work for him, who's now got his job, I guess, is what it is, who heads the government space agency. And and uh, they they hatch their plot to go to go to space in these in these early scenes because floyd is now a the, the the story here is floyd ran the space agency when the when 2001 happened and after everybody died he basically was the fall guy and he left and he's now the professor of unnamed university where there are dolphins and radio telescopes and for some reason he has to go out and polish the telescopes by hand yeah i, I get the feeling <laughs> that's like he's he's in a doghouse or something yeah i feel i always felt like that was his like his only connection he still has with the thing he loves which is space stuff as mm. this university president job that he's got i mean he's got a very nice house with dolphins in it but obviously he he's still haunted by what happened and he blames himself for the deaths and that is, so does everybody else apparently so that's that's tough. Do you think the dolphins are actually their pets, or are they just like the dolphins that wander in from the ocean every once in a while? I think in the book that's that's the implication is that the dolphins can just come in and they know they get fed, and so they come in. But um, in the movie, the movie doesn't you know doesn't dwell on it too much. <laughs> There's a very complicated shot from going underwater with the dolphins up into the pool. Uh, it is it, it, to look at the kid giving the the fish to the dolphins. It's like why, why do we? It's totally why unnecessary. Needs to be in the movie. <laughs> The, the, none of it needs to be in the movie, Joe, and yet yeah. it, it is. It is in the movie. The point. Now, so the point of this is <laughs> to long duration space flight. Um, he's got a young son. He t- says the story later that actually he's got a daughter who's in college, who's who's like eighteen. That's the little girl that we saw in two thousand one, where he has the whole conversation where he says, "Well, tell your mom I love her," and she's like, "I will." And you're as a viewer, you're you're like, "That's never going to happen." But she died. The mom died, and he remarried, and he's got this young younger wife who's a professor at the university, presumably and they've got this young son and this is a, a stronger thing thread in the book than it is in the movie in the movie he he uh, we we hear his letters home to her to caroline um but by the end he's his letters are to his son and in the book that's more clear that this is a uh the, this has been a difficult separation uh, over several years as a part of this mission for their marriage in this we see them all sitting on the beach at the end of it so i guess that's not as big a thing but that's the idea that you're all sacrificing by going on a two-year trip to to jupiter in in suspended animation yeah she did not take that news very well uh no she broke yeah. a glass yeah. <laughs> it's the universal Wasted sign the of, of being unhappy is uh, when you're doing the dishes is you break a glass mm-hmm. it's, it's terrible so um I want to talk about the next character we meet is Dr. Chandra, who is the inventor of Hal. Um, this is a character who is absolutely supposed to be Indian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like 100,000%. And they cast Bob Balban. And you know what? Bob Balban is great. And he's great in this. And he does a great job. But but at the time, as just a kid in the in the, in the a small town in 1984, I was like... Wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Why is oh, that yeah. a white guy? That is the whole point is that is that and he's got he's R Chandra in this. It's like his full name is in the book and they call him Dr. Chandra as a, for short because he has a very long Indian name and they just it just I shake my head every time I see it cuz again, it's not like Bob Balaban doesn't give a good performance. In fact, the way he talks, it's so clearly like, oh, that's why Hal talks like that. But it's but it's the just I, I it frustrates me every time that this is Arthur C. Clarke 
was casting his book more diversely than Peter Himes was willing to do in the movie. Or maybe the studio or the was studio, willing to yeah. let Peter Himes. I don't want to put it on Peter Himes necessarily, but somebody decided they weren't going to cast an Indian actor as Chandra. And uh, it's too bad. Well, I mean, look at Short Circuit. Like, right around the same time, look at Short Circuit. Or don't. Let's let's not look at Short Circuit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, never, ever again. Well, and I want to know, like, they got so many good Russian actors to be on the Lanov. Why? I mean, Dana Elkar is fun, but he stole Walter Koenig's accent. Yes. And it's just terrible. (laughs) Very bad. It's very, very bad. (laughs) Yes, I really was waiting for the nuclear vessels to show up. nuclear vessels, yes. Yes. But and it's a fun conversation between the two of them, but it's almost like and it didn't strike me until this viewing, I think, that it's just almost comedic how bad his accent is. It's true. Again, enjoyable character actor. I like seeing him. He's fun. But why? Yeah, I I, uh, same thing. But Chandra is like it was very specifically written and they didn't change the name. Um, Yeah. And and so that bothers me every time, although I do like um, as uh, Dr. Drang, who's often on this show, pointed out when uh, when I saw him a little while ago, he he's very proud of the fact that it's the University of Illinois that that is the that is the place from which Hal came, and that is mentioned in two thousand one. And then here we actually see the lab in Urbana, Illinois, where Hal came online. And there's a Sal nine thousand who is voiced by the mysterious Emma Malsnerd, who is Candace Bergen. <laughs> <laughs> um, credited as Emma Malsnerd, I don't know why, but she it's Candace Bergen as the as the Sal nine thousand. And I'm fascinated by the fact that that Dr. Chandra has this whole little uh, little family of AI computers who talk to him and ask him very creepy questions about if he, if they're going to dream when they get turned off and things like that but it is very much putting you in the mood of of um hey remember when hal killed all those people in that last movie that's that's going to be the source of lots of our dramatic tension in this movie so early on we're reminded of that but also there's this emotional bond that i think um at some point in my notes i said you know every monster has somebody who loves them and dr chandra in this is great because he he he's the only one who cares about hal which doesn't mean he doesn't know he's not dangerous but he cares he like he loves his little computers and thinks they're people which maybe they are jason how Hal's only dangerous because of stupid people who give him conflicting instructions the sal the sal character was very interesting to me this time because um, she's basically I mean we only see her for you know what two minutes on the screen and she's basically Chandra's cheerleader she's like this part of him that he's put outside of himself to to sort of buck himself up and reinforce himself and talk to himself and it's it's like a psychologist's like crazy dream to see him like talking (laughs) to himself with with this this uh, very calm female voice um but it, it just struck yeah i guess it just struck me this time that it, it was she's a part of him like these computers really are parts of him in some way that he is externalized and and they're this like this this feedback loop talking to them yeah and it, it doesn't it, it's mentioned in a few places it is important in this movie but um floyd and chandra are the two characters who are the most you know They've had a hard time the last nine years, right? Like, how, how the computer that Chandra created killed a bunch of people on the mission that Floyd was in charge of. And they're both kind of, they have to go because this has been hanging over their heads for all of this time. 
and they, they they you know they have this that no other character in this movie has that Haywood Floyd and Dr. Chandra have, which is they they you know this is there's unfinished business out there at the Discovery. This episode of The Incomparable has a sponsor, and that sponsor is Linode. With Linode, you have access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting at just $5 a month. You can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in less than a minute. I use Linode for The Incomparable and Six Colors. That's where all of my stuff is. It's on a little Linode server hanging out in one of their data centers. I think mine's in Dallas. It's super fast, centrally located. And uh, the podcast that you're downloading and the, the pages that you're viewing are coming from Linode. Now, whether you're starting with your first server, which is a big step, or deploying an incredibly complex system, Linode can do it. They can handle it. They're the right choice for either of those or anything in between. They have fast hardware. They have a super fast network. They have fantastic customer support behind it all. It's never been easier to launch a Linode cloud server. They guarantee 99.9% uptime for server availability. Once your server is up, they make sure that it stays up. And Linode also offers additional storage. Block storage is out of beta. It's available in the Fremont and Newark data centers. Great for tasks. Uh, host a large database, run a mail server, operate a VPN, run Docker containers, host a private Git server. Uh, again, run a podcast network if you want, tech blogs, things like that. Uh, our live stream goes through our Linode server. Like, everything goes through the Linode server. And uh, so you should check them out for sure. They've got great pricing options available. Plan start. Again, one gig of RAM for $5 a month, which, like, it used to be so expensive. To run a server on the internet? Not anymore. And if you need a high memory plan, they've got those two starting with 16 gigs of RAM. Now, as a listener to The Incomparable, if you sign up at linode.com slash Snell, my last name, you will support us. You will also be getting $20 toward any plan. Now, do the math there. The one gig plan, that's four free months at $5 a month. That's pretty cool. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. Go to linode.com slash Snell to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or use the promo code SNELL2018 when you check out. Thank you to Linode for supporting The Incomparable. Okay, let's let's move on to the... Let's go to spaceships. We have spaceships now. We'll fly out there with Alexei Leonov and and Floyd gets woken up early because they get a message and 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 uh and there's something happening on Europa. Um but just before we get into that part of the plot, I wanted to ask everybody about the um just about the spaceships. Like one of the fun things about this that I like and and it's in the Clark novel. It's not uh invented by the design of the movie, but it's the idea that um after the long round kind of beautiful discovery that the Alexei Leonov is boxy and has a ugly rotating section on the externally rotating section. I mean, discovery has a rotating section, but it's inside. Um, and, uh, I, I always appreciate the design of it because it is in, in one way, it's this movie saying, yeah, our spaceship is ugly. Like that 2001 spaceship is beautiful. Um, the spaceship in this movie, not, it's not. And yeah, you can say that it's a brutalist Russian spaceship, but um, it is uh, it is a fun thing to see. And it's very practical. And that's one thing that um, Helen Mirren's character accuses uh, Roy Scheider of later is you're not a very practical man. And it's it's <laughs> very, it, it looks like you said, brutalist and, and dirty and dark and all the, the graphics are very big and 
boxy and all of the uh, the, the fonts that they use on uh, to label things. I mean, I can't read Russian. I assume they're all just saying, you know, like, this is a thing. Here is a pod. <laughs> right. Here is this other thing. But airlock. it's all... Yes, exactly. I like to think that the Russian airlock just says exit on it, and they all know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, one thing I don't like about it, though, I, is that the gravity on it doesn't make any sense with the rotating section, yeah. because they're not actually in the rotating section. They're in the part of the ship that's not moving. <laughs> the whole entire movie, they look out the window. Yeah. There's that moment late in the movie where Roy Scheider, it's a very cool scene where he's explaining what he wants to do, and he's doing it by using pens and hanging them in zero gravity. The problem is, like, up until that point in the scene they're just walking around like mm-hmm. oh are we in zero gravity because you weren't floating you were just walking it is it is super inconsistent they use it from time to time and they've got the rotating section but you're absolutely right they're like where they're implied to be for mo- most of it i think they they do show when they're out at the airlock they show that the gravity isn't right there but um otherwise they basically fudge it they're like it's it's fine we see the spinning thing that's that's that that means we have gravity everywhere it's fine yeah it, it seems like th- things things along those lines that are are so incredibly meticulously taken care of in 2001 that's uh, these are some of the signs that you're definitely not in that movie um i mean uh, shortly after they they awaken uh floyd uh they're suddenly yeah. having a meeting on what looks like uh the the deck of the nostromo um <laughs> at, at, the, at the exact mm-hmm. same table with the exact same lights uh from alien uh and it, it there there are parts of it that just feel like recycled space movie stuff from the last 10 years yeah it is it is very alien inspired like you said uh, and um some of that is also sid Mead's doing the concept art for everything that's on the leonov uh the leonov yep. um and in, in, outside and inside uh even though of course sid Mead worked on aliens and ron cobb did alien but whatever um same, same basic principle uh all the garish button colors and everything uh and crt monitors where letters just kind of print on one at a time um that that's all there um and i i I think that it really dates the movie in a way that 2001 isn't doesn't feel as dated because all those graphic graphics are hand-drawn and uh, while it isn't what our computers were like in 2001 um it does set up a a slightly different universe so you're not thinking about what it was in the past Mm -hmm. um where whereas this one is it definitely feels like it's 1984 in space i agree we're up to the big divergence from the um from the book which is they wake hey, tell Floyd, us, tell us how you Floyd really up. feel jason is it was not <laughs> better <laughs> so so well i mean i love the book and i like the movie but this is i, I usually i there was a time when i had a very standard thing that i would say which is my favorite th- scene in the book isn't in the movie because in in and it actually shows you how much arthur c clark is famous for having predicted so many different things that ended up being uh real real stuff the, like right back to like communication satellites so many things um and this one of the dynamics that is lost in this book or in the movie that's in the book is the fact that it's not just the Russians and the Americans, it's also the Chinese. And there's a Chinese spaceship that has already gotten to Jupiter and, but, and they're going to lose the race. They didn't realize that the Chinese were going into, it was a secret and they're going to lose the race to Jupiter to figure out what's going on discovery. But the Chinese spaceship has to land on Europa uh, because they're actually going to pick up water and use it as a propellant, and it's basically they're refueling on Europa. And uh, what happens is they discover life on Europa, and the life uh, destroys the spaceship. And it's very exciting and dramatic. And in this, they're sort of like, they just say, well, we sent a probe to Europa, and we saw something green. That's weird. But then the probe was destroyed, and uh, 
that's it. And there's a it's a neat there's a neat shot where they're like it's like a, a drone basically over a bunch of ice and they're trying to see and you can't really see clearly and there's some water and and um and this all goes back to also the fact that we knew a whole lot more about Jupiter in uh, 1984 than we did in 1968. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to say is my story is a little bit different now because if you want to get a feel of what that that scene is like, they made a whole movie that basically is that scene, which is Europa <laughs> Report. So you can just go watch Europa Report. Uh, spoilers for Europa Report. The same thing happens to that spaceship that happens to the Chinese spaceship in 2010. <laughs> I, I like that movie. It's an endorsement. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's me fun. Too. And it's, it's, it's a good it's science good. and it's very exciting and it is very much all the drama of the scenes with the Tien spaceship in the book of 2010. I, I get why they simplified it for the movie and and the Chinese weren't really on the on the on the geopolitical radar of Peter Himes, who wanted to do this, uh, you know, Russian uh, the the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of parallel and, and a plea for world peace. But Arthur C. Clarke was like, ah, no, but space it's going to be multipolar. It's going to be more complicated. And you know, good good job there. I think that 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 was a, a very smart thing that he did in the books. Um, I, also, I mentioned it, but I want to say one of the amazing things about this, especially having just seen two thousand one, is. Uh, what happened between 1968 and 1984 is that we sent two Voyager probes past Jupiter. And so this movie, we know so much more about Jupiter. Like 2001, there's a shot of Jupiter and it is super like pale and fuzzy because we knew so little about it. And one of the great things and one of the things I really love about 2010 is that it takes all that Voyager imagery and it just goes with it. It's like Io, it's huge and orange and weird. And and we've got the, the great red spot and like lots of detail in Jupiter. And Jupiter doesn't quite actually look like it looks in this movie, but it's like super banded and colorful and and, and Jupiter and the moons of Jupiter are are like a character in this movie almost because they're looming in in all of the space shots. And I think it helps the movie a lot. And it's one of those cases where um, I think I think literally Arthur C. Clarke was inspired to write the book because we now know way more about um, Jupiter than we did back then. Yeah. And like you're saying, with the uh they got the data from JPL. They did the whole simulation for uh, Jupiter, which is uh, more effective later on when it starts caving in on itself um, mm-hmm. for the time period that it was done. Um, and of course, like you said, it doesn't look like it, how it really looks, but uh, it's better than a styrofoam painted ball um, for a planet. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's that's good. And the Russian uh, readout of Jupiter has like a little little stripes and a little spot on it which i thought was a like unnecessary detail when they when they're monitoring jupiter later in the movie their jupiter isn't just like a dot or a ball it's like got got some stripes little computer stripes and a little computer circle for the great red spot and i thought that's what what russian programmer thought i know (laughs) i'm gonna make a, a neat fun jupiter for the Leonov, but well, it makes there. it look so cute. It is adorable. <laughs> it is. I want to give a shout out to um, the probe that they send to Europa that provides its own suspenseful music that gets more suspenseful as it gets closer <laughs> and closer to the 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 chlorophyll and and I want to know what exactly the point of that is that that it's going ding ding ding. Ding. And then it goes, and then it's da dun, da dun, da dun. And it's like, this is just make, why would you do that? Why would you make something tenser when the closer you're getting to it, except for that, I mean, <laughs> except it's, for that effect? It's the future Soviet Union. I think, I think, you know, it's the, the, the people who brought us Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev are like, oh, I'm right. going to kill it with this right. probe beeping. Good I'm point. not going to just do a beep. I'm going to have like dramatic beeping happen. 
so so having done the film score draft uh and one of the scores i forgot was david shire's taking of pelham one two three david shire did the score for this and it's, it's not really the taking bad. of pelham oh, one two three so awful. yeah it's, it's really yeah. bad <laughs> like the, the weird thing about pelham one two three is he's doing the 12 tone schoenberg style music which is insane for that kind of a movie and and so he's like trying all this music theory over here and it's like get your music theory out of my movie stop with the russian stuff just oh my god you know, so it's like he can be really, really good. And then he did 2010. Well, apparently he did it in like a month or something yeah, if I was I reading IMDb correctly. It sure sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, it, do, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, apparently it does. they were going to have Tony Banks from Genesis do it, and then that didn't work Russian out. Music, <laughs> Russian music. Let's have Russian music. And, you know, I, I really nah. did not need thus big Zarathustra in this. I, I, as, as many things as they diverged from the first film, I, I just... That cue just felt like, hey, by the way, this is still yeah. a sequel to 2001. Yeah. Did yeah, you notice? Yeah, like, hey, remember that movie? Remember? Remember? Well, here it is again. You have to have the Trek fanfare in Star Trek. You had to have that in this. Yeah, and they, they try to use it at the point where it makes sense. And just there's also a moment where they show the monolith for the first time and they do the, the chorus of the, oh, the super crazy, mm-hmm. creepy voice chorus stuff. Because the, the they're like, remember? Stuff, yeah. <laughs> you see that movie? <laughs> yeah, we mm-hmm. saw it. We got it. From the beginning until n- this point in the movie, watching it this morning, my closest analogy was... I feel like I'm watching Hunt for Red October, that it's Hmm. that same method of information delivery, that we have just a boatload of information, and all that we're going to do is show people talking to each other. But we're going to pay very close attention to which pieces of information are delivered at which points and make it so that... It feels as natural as it can, especially I'm thinking of of the conversation that Floyd and his uh, replacement chairman have sitting in front of the White House. And the guy's about to go in and deliver like this, um, uh, these recommendations to the president. And and the president, we're we're told, is a very reactionary president and he isn't into health foods. And this did not Mm -hmm. strike a chord at all, let me tell you. (laughs) Um and that the Russians must be laughing their asses off at us. And, and it, and, and we're finding out about, you know, who he, it's like, we're going to get the team together. We're going to get the band back together. Here's who's coming. We're getting Chandra and we're getting, uh, Kerno, uh, who designed Kurnow. the discovery is yeah. going to go. He's, he's building discovery too, but it's too late. We just got to take him now. Yeah, it's pretty effective sitting on a bench uh, exposition for, hey, you know, your favorite characters that were off screen during all of 2001. We're bringing them all back. (laughs) Yep, it's the crew behind the crew. We're getting the band you never met back together. And then the um, when they wake up um, Floyd and there's that very tense meeting at the table where it's clear that the Russians have instructions basically to tell him absolutely nothing to stonewall him as much as they possibly can um and you have these conversations going across each other where um uh it's the scientists 
telling him that they've found what they think is chlorophyll at the same time that Helen Mirren is explaining to him what's going on at home. And it felt almost like the West Wing where at its best, where where you had these conversations that were just ping ponging back and forth and you're talking about this, but no, you're actually talking about this and they get resolved sort of at the same time. And it's the most effective information delivery you can have because it's people just sitting talking at each other and yet it's somehow still tense. He doesn't have all the information. So the geopolitical situation's gotten worse while he's been in hibernation. So there's that where he's like, why are you guys acting so weird? And there's that element to it. And then he plays the, come on, guys, we're scientists. And that's a long ways away you know work with me here and you know from their perspective we don't get we don't get a lot from the russian perspective in this movie even though they're all these characters but you know you you do get the sense that you know they are scientists but at the same time they're also you know people who are from the soviet space program and have have gotten where they are because they follow orders presumably mm-hmm. um and there is a cold war going on i mean this is the international space station there had a whole conversation about how even when the um when the relationship between the u.s and, and russia uh, at various points was really bad like the they were still sharing soyuz flights up to the space station and working on the space station and it was definitely i kept thinking that while i was watching this like in the end uh the two countries had all these things against each other but they were both like yeah but the space stuff it's fine like just you you, you you and that's where 2010 ends up is it's fine they 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 work together but it is a very cool scene when um haywood floyd is the only american who's awake and he's like why won't you talk to me why am i here it's like well your government told us to wake you up but we're not telling you anything like what a position to be in i mean it it, it is nice that they let him shave his his little beard goatee thing. yeah i like that that, <laughs> that like, was that was very he's all beardy because he's been in the in the in the hibernation um, not that beardy though there should be more yeah. well, my guess is it's slowed down like yeah. everything else yeah, yeah. totally yeah. that's what it is it's it's uh his heart beats once a minute or whatever and the, 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 the suspended animation soul patch the metabolism <laughs> just uh slows you down um they do they do ultimately um after the close encounter at europa they do which is actually uh throughout this you, you have to be reminded that they are in a um in a universe where weird alien objects have been found and then a bunch of astronauts got killed and then one disappeared mysteriously. Like there is that moment where uh, after the thing, you know, at the probe gets zapped at Europa and all of their probe memory gets erased and all that, where they're all kind of looking at each other and maybe we'll send another probe and all that. And Haywood Floyd basically is like, I think there's weird stuff going on here. And I, I like that <laughs> reminder, like, you know, they know that there's something weird out here. They're not just like going and getting a spaceship that is mysteriously shut down. They're like, they know about the monolith and the monolith of Jupiter. And like, they know weird stuff is going on. They don't know all of it, but that's definitely part of the, the tension here is that there's the, the unknown that, that they know uh, that, you know, is out there, but they don't know what it is. Yeah. They certainly don't want to uh, internally kind of believe that it was an alien force that just, shot a probe out of the the upper atmosphere of europa and zapped all the memory on their ship they just kind of want to accept that oh it's just an electrostatic discharge you know it was just a natural occurrence uh that way it's just more comfortable for them to deal with that right and floyd is is already like "Mm, don't know about that um but they do they wake up uh the other americans because they reach the discovery um this is done through um the 
Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I skipped over the error breaking, which we should at least mention, because that's totally a thing that they do now. For they, uh, It had never been tried with people in 2010 uh, in the movie, but they do that with space probes now where they, they graze them off the atmosphere of planets in order to slow them down. That totally happens. They don't necessarily have the, the big uh, sail that gets deployed. The bal- balut, the balut, apparently. That's very, it's good, it's good Russian invention. Um, I don't know why we had to know it's called a balut, but apparently that's what it is. I think as, uh, I think Peter Himes just really liked the word. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that it was the idea of uh, something from Arthur C. Clarke that was based on kind of real science and he thought that was fun. But we do get, it's a very tense scene. They're not going to kill everybody at this point in the movie, but they they, they have this tense moment and we see that the, the, um, the one Russian crew woman who who basically never speaks comes into the the chamber with haywood floyd to brace for the impact of that um there's much more of that in the in the book because this is again part of the kind of like his uh his relationship with his wife deteriorating over distance there's not so much of it in in the movie though oh that's interesting that that actually is a reference to the book i figured it was just a you know a bit of retrograde 80s sort of we we gotta put a a girl in his arms at some point um for no real reason no she's much um, more she's an actual character in the book or at least you know to a certain extent she's she we know who she is whereas here she just kind of shows up she we know more about her in the book than we do here she's arm candy with a purpose in yeah the book. well I, I mean i like the idea that they're all very far away from home and terrified and that that it's kind of nice, but it is also really weird, I think, without, in the, just in the context, in the no context of the movie. Um, yeah. It goes on for a bit too long that they're like this giant fireball careening around Jupiter. And it's a, it's a really pretty looking effect. Um, and they, they have these gorgeous long shots of, of uh, the, the planets of Jupiter and its moons and just this little sort of pinprick of fire going around. But it's I did start to twiddle my thumbs a bit. And there's no drama. I mean, I, I feel no tension here because they're not going to kill the crew <laughs> 30 minutes into the movie, right? So... Uh-huh. But it is, yeah. you know, it, it amps up the stakes, and then and then after this point is when we when then then they wake up John Lithgow and uh, and Bob Balaban and the Americans are now they're at at Discovery and they um and we go on with the rest of the plot, which is they they've reached Discovery and they've got to do the initial spacewalk because uh, John Lithgow's got to go over uh, to Discovery to figure out if he can get it up and up and running again, and that's a big set piece in the movie that I. I I I I kind of love it. Uh, Ilya Baskin, super smiley. Um, he's going to take John Lithgow over there, um, and I love his Greek fisherman's hat. And they're and they're well. I I did <laughs> note like they let him bring his wacky hat with him on a space mission, which is kind of funny. But um, they do, and they, this is like 2001. This is a nod to 2001. You've got those scenes where you're hearing people breathe in the spacesuits, and here um, uh, Kerno is hyperventilating because he is just he is not he, he, spacewalk he, he looks is not down. a thing. Don't look down. Yeah, he's, he does not want to do that. And Ilya Baskin's kind of talking him through it. And he has this panic attack and they have to get all the way across. And he's got his little thing. And there are a couple of shots that are not very good where they're... Um, Joe, you you could probably say oh, what it is. But yeah. it's like the the, bl- the blacks of the space sh- of the of the astronaut oh, yeah. suits are all mm-hmm. kind of like light gray. And then against the black of space. So you can tell that it's um, not really well matted in there but i i appreciate that they did they wanted to do this thing where they're like they're not tethered they're like uh they're tethered together but then 
Ilya Baskin has his his little spray bottle thing that he uses to kind of like, and there's that cool shot where he shoots it and then the the rope with John Lithgow gets tense and then yanks him along. It's like, it felt like a, a, a dangerous spacewalk, which is how it's played in the movie, even though there are some special effects moments where you're like, "Mm, okay, some of it's really good and some of it's not that great. Yeah. I mean, they're pushing the boundaries of what they could do with that. Uh, It's not as good as the the ship shots because those are, they they did a whole complicated matting process where they could shoot it once uh, and then go back with a white card behind it to get like a perfect mat of things with the, with the people in spacesuits, you can't do that. So you got all the spill problems where there's color Mm -hmm. contamination and all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look as good, um, especially to modern eyes. Uh, you most, you know, weather channel stuff for blue screen uh, generally could be better uh, than than this. But it's it's really super ambitious for the time they did it, especially with all the complicated wire work they were trying to hide for moving these people around like this to to slingshot John Lithgow back like he had been jerked by this by this umbilical between him and uh, the Russian astronaut cosmonaut sorry yeah well i'm just glad that i never saw it on the big screen because that audio of 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 lithgow hyperventilating would have just sent me over the edge if i was hearing it like in in like the surround sound i can't i think it's pretty hilarious i i had to fast forward through it when i was young because it just freaked me it's super tense right and it's 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 uh i i like that is a thing that this movie has in common with 2001 i feel like is the the there is that fundamental tension of being alone in space with nothing but your your breath and, and then when they're crawling across uh, the, oh. the outside of the discovery and the gravity kicks in and they're getting heavy and Lithgow is I can't breathe and I'm just every time I'm like turn down the C- turn up the CO2 and he's like I can't do it and, and the, the, Elia Baskin's like uh, yeah I can do it you know and he's probably yeah. suffering a lot too because he says later like I did the same thing when I did this for the first time it's, and, and it's then, but then Lithgow time. says when have you done this before and he says never, never. so it's 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 a total lie <laughs> yeah it's I, like he but he, he helps him out and 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 they do it and it's i think it's a pretty great set piece like they're floating in space against this thing that's somersaulting right like it's super the 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 difference between the leonoff when we're relative to them and the discovery is kind of spinning end over end and it's like look at the center look at the center and then they grab it and now you know they're in that perspective where they're on the discovery and and they're they're still doing the tilt as they have to go all the way to the edge like it's a lot a lot of detail and and, uh, and they take the time, it's, and it's kind of nerve-wracking, and it's great. I like it a lot. Yeah, I don't think they would take the time to do that scene now. They would. They certainly no, wouldn't do right. it in that detail with that. It wouldn't feel that like moment by moment, and here is you know the actual sort of chunky physics of it. It would be a lot more smooth and a lot more just like whoosh, we're over there. At the beginning, at the beginning of the sequence, it almost, with it being Lithgow, who has, I mean, he's so well known for his comic timing, it, it almost makes you think that it's being played for laughs. And then it gets incredibly, incredibly serious to where it's just not funny anymore. Uh, and, and his general demeanor ends up making it a little bit more unsettling. Uh, because I, when I first saw it, I didn't know, I didn't know how to read what was going on. Whether it was, you know, silly guy who designs spaceships who's never been to space, apparently. Um, or, uh, or if this was just, uh, you know, uh, just space terror stuff. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like his, this particular interaction, a young Michael Bay was looking at this and going, you know what? I could send oil drillers to space. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, 
but mm. I, 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 th- I do agree that the acting really sells this um, uh, more. Uh, you know, the special effects are here doing what they can with everything. Uh, the ship spinning, the somersaults, everything. There's a nice establishing shot of the, Le- the Leonov in the foreground with the Discovery in the background. And you see the spinning of Discovery uh, nearly matching up with the rotation of the, Le- the Leonov midsection. But uh, that that wouldn't work without John Lithgow and uh, and um, oh, I can't Elia Baskin. Baskin. Yes, Elia Baskin. Um, Without their performances uh, in here, because then once they get inside, uh, they get to switch roles because Elia Baskin Mm -hmm. is the one who's freaking out. And John Lithgow has to be the one to calm him down. And it really bonds the two of them together. And it's I think it sells the scene. Um, Mm. It it does go on for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think today they could do a scene this long, but they would have to be much more specific in, in sort of like the various phases of difficulty and challenges they were they were facing and it, it is but they, I, I, they I think it would it. also get lost in the uncanny valley where you've got people that you can tell are suspended in front of a green screen and not uh, you know as as imperfect as i think modern eyes would look at the effects on this you know the bad mats and difficult uh, issues with color matching and all that kind of stuff it, it feels more real it feels it feels like people are actually going through something and not reacting really well to something that they've had described to them while they've been told to look at a tennis ball by the way the um uh, throughout watching both of these movies but especially 2010 i thought to myself oh this is this is the um the inspiration for the expanse (laughs) right where it's (laughs) like oh i get it now like because there's so many elements in the expanse that are very 2001 or 2010 of not only you know jupiter and other planets uh and and moons in our solar system but a lot of sort of like spaceship outside and going along the side of a spaceship and all of that kind of drama um it's come to this we can do that on tv now also the leonov and uh you know immediately you think of the 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 earth force space destroyers in 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 uh babylon 5 yeah absolutely um, right because they're they're that level yeah. of just kind of brutalist design where they're they're not trying to make them bo- beautiful at all they're just boxes that are functional and, and get us to space that's true that's true um so they do Ilya baskin does smell the discovery and that's that's right out of the book where there's that that horror moment where he's like oh my god i smell it's terrible and they're like it's probably just some bad meat in the commissary they they left dave bowman isn't here but again it's the ghosts they're in a haunted spaceship essentially it's 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 right. creepy because right. this is we don't we don't really know what happened we know that the that these people died and then dave disappeared and that's all we know and so so they they you know they get it up and running they get um they get uh uh they build their little uh little uh like conveyor belt shuttle pod thingy that lets them do it you know connect between the two ships um and uh and then dr chandra gets to bring hal back which leads us to a, a couple of scenes that are super creepy because i mean he has to bring hal back with the weird doctor father doctor tomorrow today kind of thing but it is kind of cool because he's spinning around like dave is at the end of 2001 he's pushing the little blocks in like dave is pulling them out in 2001 so it's like the reverse of that and there's this moment like no 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 what are you doing hal is a murderous computer what are you what are you doing and of course hal's voice is still so gentle and calm and um 
And it is, you know, Chandra touches the little circle of the red eye of murderous HAL 9000. And that's that moment of like, everybody has somebody who loves them, even a monster, even a murderous (laughs) monster robot like HAL. Again, HAL is not a monster. He's just, I mean, this is part of what this movie spells out so much more than 2001 is that if these stupid meatbags had not given him conflicting instructions, everything would have been fine. Stupid. I mean, Chandra Sh- is the doctor. We all, we, we all, we all know. We all know what what Hal did, and he's super creepy. Even though this movie does try to explain that it's not Hal's fault. It's it's the. It turns out it is. It, we were the monster all along. It's the, I, it's the government's fault. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the president. It's the president's fault. Yeah, absolutely. It was Although, coming from inside the ship. And this, and so it has a wonderful. And this is a wonderful detail that I like in this movie. Is the. Uh, uh, he has uh, Floyd has Kerno install a little remote controlled, basically like guillotine for Hal that will cut <laughs> the power to Hal if he puts a special code in a calculator he keeps with him, and um, and then at z- several points he gets out the calculator like oh, I don't know about this, and then at the very <laughs> last scene when uh, when Chandra's back on the Leonov at the end of the movie he hands the thing to to. Uh, to Floyd and is like, oh yeah, I I, I found that that was really obvious. Uh, and the whole time they have not been able to stop Hal afterward, which is a very nice kind of like turn turn around on that point because the whole whole time he's like, I don't know, I could just use the kill switch on Hal, and then it turns out the kill switch was already removed by Chandra, who has great faith in his pupil. Um, yeah. So that's, and, that's. I mean, I personally would not have had that faith. In no, hell, but... no, 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 no. Of course not. There's no evidence to support that, especially the the scene um, at the end where Chandra is sitting there inside the chair, uh, being like, "Hal, you're gonna have to do this thing," and he's like, "I don't know." Are you sure? For the mission, I, I think, think we maybe should stop I it. <laughs> like, no, no, no. You really should. I, I don't know. It seems like <laughs> I'm waiting. Like, it seems like I should probably stop the countdown. And Chandra's, no, I think you should just keep doing it. I don't know, Doctor. I'm pretty smart. <laughs> well, so, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but but uh, might as well talk about it, which is what I love about that scene. I mean, throughout this movie, the soft-spokenness of Hal, again, one of the great things about the first movie, it is very much like, you know, it is so unnerving. And Chandra has this incredible belief in him, and he's done pretty well. And then at this point, again, he's being perfectly reasonable. And there's this great debate of, like, do you tell him the truth or do you lie to him? The whole idea is that the lie is or what caused him to go crazy to begin with. And in the end, what Chandra does is tell him the truth, which is, yeah, you might die. There is danger. The The discovery may not make it, um, but we need to, we will, um, you know, the Leonov and all the people on it will be destroyed if we don't do this. At which point, Hal goes, oh, I see. All right. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, and then Chandra offers to stay with him. Yeah. Which gets me every yeah. single time. Mm, yeah. It's like he's been such a sort of weirdo through this movie and you don't know, <laughs> you know, is, is he going to let Hal just sort of run rampant because he can't stand the thought of, of his, his baby, you know, his baby boy doing some, you know, being killed or whatever. And then he's like, he's the only one who, who honestly treats Hal as a person and is willing to sacrifice himself to make Hal feel better. And that honestly, that one line just humanizes the character for me, Mm -hmm. which is a weird thing to say, but it's true. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think what happens to Hal is also really, really delightful, which is, you know, the last person to talk to Hal is the disembodied voice of whatever was once Dave Bowman. And 
he says, I've got to, you know, and, and they have this conversation that it, it is so kind of sweet and weird simultaneously where we're at one point how talking to the ghost of dave bowman is like i just want to say it's really great to be working with you again dave mm-hmm. it's like what is happening here <laughs> like i've been trying to tell you the whole time hal is a very collegial honest straightforward co-worker that's just trying to do his job <laughs> sometimes it involves murder but yeah i mean that's that's the thing that once you know what happens in this movie you can see it's like hal's fine like after he's freed of the orders but nobody trusts him because he did he killed a bunch of people (laughs) what are you gonna what are you gonna do but it is and and the sweetest part of that whole thing and this is after chandra's um offered to stay with hal is that dave says that's you send this other message and then um you know, and then you and I will be together. And he's like, well, where will we be? He says, well, where I am now. And there's this idea that, that Hal's not going to die when the discovery is, uh, it, because Hal is a, is a, a living creature, essentially, is a sentient being. And whoever is, whatever creatures or system or whatever is behind the monolith that, that picked up Dave, they're going to pick up Hal too. Like Hal isn't going to just be there and have his spaceship exploded, that they're, they're taking him there there he gets to go with dave to the afterlife i think that's kind of delightful and also super strange but i think it's great mm. yeah. I, oh, yeah especially since he tried to murder him <laughs> well you know <laughs> you become a space child and you you forgive a lot i guess <laughs> so helen mirren wants to send our friend billy baskin max down to the monolith with a pod there are he's got his little hat and he says piece of pie easy as cake uh, which is delightful because we've seen the bond between him and Kerno now. He goes out to explore the monolith, and for a long period of time, it's uh, like the most boring thing in the whole movie. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's an homage to the first movie. <laughs> yeah, no. it really is. Uh, and I want to know why they're sending him in the first place. I mean, I understand th- this is the one thing. They have remote probes. They have remote remote probes. There's no reason for Helen Mirren's character to decide to send him. No, this is and Peter Hyams wanting to create some tension and some stakes by killing a but, crew member. And it, it, he might as well be like, this is his last day before retirement. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just have, I have in my notes, poor Max, he's so dead. Like, it, there's no reason to yeah. do this except friend, to kill him. Friend Cornell, after this mission is over, I am retiring to my, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to my vodka I always factory. wanted to see Montana. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> After this, I only have bottled vodka for rest of life. It's very nice existence. Did you know we invented? And we actually Montana. see his little pod kind of fly away when the things come out of the out of the monolith, and it's like it, there's no yeah. It 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 bugs me every time because it's just kind of I I know why in the screenplay is like aha I will make tension by having it seem dangerous <laughs> and the, and and killing Max and all that, but I'm not sure. First off, the, I think the monolith is. Better better because it's completely impassive and and empty and yeah. it, won't, it ignores us and so to have it react it's like really I, I would much rather it just not react and be like okay we knocked on the door there was no answer and then it just disappears and goes and destroys jupiter but that's not what the, this movie one, does one thing i never really understood from this was uh it looked like it makes like a vortex or something so it's like is this trying to like take max in but because he aborts at the last minute he actually gets like blasted out of there like what's going on the way i read it and this is not from the book so much as just the way i read it watching the movie is that this is this is the next 
phase in the timetable of the monolith, which is people come out here and then it be, they begin the thing where they're going to protect Europa. They already did that. They're gonna, Dave emerges. Dave is sent back to deal with the humans because obviously the humans aren't going to leave it alone. Because what happens after that little thing shoots out and, and Max dies is, um, is that Dave Bowman begins appearing as a ghost basically he appears to his wife his widow in the tv um (laughs) where he says which is also creepy because he's like i remember dave bowman uh another moment where i thought of the expanse too because it's very much in the expanse for those who haven't seen it there's a character who dies and then is sort of still around but he's actually kind of the absorbed like he remembers being the other character but he's not that character anymore it's a little bit like that i guess it's like Leah and star trek the motion picture too but let's mm-hmm. not talk about that the, the expanse the expanse is is really really full-formed space odyssey fan fiction in a it's, big way i mean i think in so i, I have not realized yeah. how much oh yeah yeah <laughs> um anyway it is it is great though um i i, I love the two ghost dave things i love that he goes and sees his 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 widow who has remarried and uh you know he's not quite dave but he is dave and she's sad and he asks if you know she's married a good man and she says she has and then he's gonna go and she says don't go and and the response that has always gotten me which is when she says don't go he says i'm already there like whoa what something's gonna happen something wonderful and uh he's gone he's out of the tv and that's it and then he goes to his mom who just had a stroke at the retirement home or the at the hospital and he brushes her hair one last time she sits up and knows that her son is there and he brushes her hair and then she dies the floating brush while she is like talking to herself and just sort of mouthing these words that you can't hear should be so silly and is just the creepiest thing Mm-hmm. And it's it's effective, even though you can almost see the strings on the brush. It's sure. still just very. It always freaked me out a little when I was when I was young, and it still freaked me out a little. The scene after this is we're back with Hal, and it's and it's something that again I, we talked about Hal a lot. But um, what Chandra says because Chandra erases his memory, and it's so sad. He's like, "Hey, where 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 Frank and Dave?" And and Chandra's like, well, they're not here right now. Has the mission been completed? Is everything okay? Yep, it's all good. It all went according to him. Like, no, it did not. No. Um, and this is and when Chandra is like, it's your fault, Haywood Floyd. You know, you you gave him these orders, and then he sees the orders, and he's like, no, government. It's the National Security Council. Um, and so this, this is this movie's answer to why war. Yeah, this is this is why Hal went crazy. Is he was told to lie by people who find it easy to lie. Uh, and to which I say, if you build an AI and it's great, unless you tell it a lie and then it goes. I mean, that's a very Captain Kirk thing to do. But like, that is a flaw <laughs> of your AI if you lie to it and it goes insane. Yeah. Oh, also, he solves this by also lying because <laughs> uh-huh. he's like, yeah, Frank's fine. He's fine. Dave's right. okay. Right. The mission was successful. Like, in in yeah. eighty four, coming out of the movie. My my first reaction was why wasn't all the advertising in sp- the, the coldest war is in space? <laughs> that's that's your tagline. Yeah. That's what the movie is. Yeah, with that fake Time magazine picture with Arthur C. Clarke as the president and Kubrick yeah. and, and, Kubrick. and Kubrick as the Russian premier. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all right, so then then we get to what is the creepiest scene in the book, and there's a pretty good creepy scene in the movie, which is um, Haywood Floyd is hanging out. He can talk to Hal now. Hal is Hal is uh, getting better at speech synthesis, and and he says, "Doctor Floyd, there's a message for you." 
and it, it's dangerous to remain here. You must leave within two days. Um, I should say that this has happened because they've been they split up the crews. They're the the situation geopolitical situation has gotten worse. Americans have gone back to to uh, Odyssey um, or I mean, Discovery. Discovery and uh, the Russian Stan Leonov and they and they like they and they throw away the little thing that connects the two, which seems wasteful. They should just reel that back in. You never know what might happen, but they throw it away. Um, it's single use. Yeah, I guess it's like yeah. So, um, but it's it's dangerous for me. It's like a cup. You, so and it's like whoa. Hal is totally freaking out. He must be going insane. He's relaying messages from an imaginary friend. But that moment where he's like, well, "Who is this?" He says, "The mess. The answer is I was David Bowman." And it's like, "Oh, what?" <laughs> it's like I, it's chills. Just it's just super creepy. And 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 finally, the response is, "I understand why you wouldn't believe me. Look behind you." It's like, oh man. Yeah. And and that being said in Hal's voice, that very like the line of a thousand horror movies being said oh. in that very calm and friendly voice is it just I I feel like this movie shouldn't give me chills and it still does give me chills. Well it's like the best thing the best thing about this movie is basically Kubrick casting Douglas Rain. Yeah. Right. Well, Douglas Rain does a great job in the in his limited, uh, or you know, and, and uh, so does um, Kier Delay. Yeah, they, they yeah. both. Uh, if they if both anything, do great one of the best yeah. one of the best special effects of the movie. It, it doesn't involve um, you know uh, composite effects or anything like that. It's what they do in cuts with Kier Delay. Yeah, where, which is which yes. is I think the most yes. most impressive and direct homage to Kubrick in the movie because as uh-huh. we talked about last time Moises that last set of scenes where he's through the Stargate and uh, is in his weird hotel room and all of that and then turns into a space baby gets older and turns into a space baby at the end um, the way Kubrick did that is every single one of the transitions um, happened where there was a change in perspective there was a cut uh, you turn around and now he's older and in this one when he sees when, when Haywood Floyd sees Keir Delay he's in his orange suit and he goes down the hallway and Roy Scheider gets up and follows him. And we, it's a unbroken shot follows him down the corridor. And as he goes beyond into the pod room, we turn the corner and he's wearing completely different clothing and he's an older, older age makeup basically. And that that's totally an homage to how Stanley Kubrick did those scenes where Dave would see something and you'd turn and look and it was him. And and it's very much the same kind of thing they're trying to do here, which is, you know, it's 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 the same guy where his age keeps changing and his voice is weird. And it's like he's he's whatever we saw at the end of 2001. And we can all debate what the heck that was because it was totally weird. Um, This is that guy because he's still got that kind of like shifting and he's younger. He's older. He's a baby. Who knows what's going on? And I I like it. I think it's I think it's super weird and uh, and uh, and and cool. Well, one, one of the things I love is when you have multiple stories in something where each story, each episode is different, right? It has its own personality, it has its own setup. And and so, you know, I kid about the first movie and really enjoying this one. And this one is very different. And then it just slowly kind of tiptoes up to the Kubrick style and, and does little things like that. And it's really nice. It's really nice. I uh, it, it lost me this time. Um, really, in that part that it seemed like the movie was trying to accommodate something it wasn't built for. Um, mm-hmm. That this version is so much it, it, not version, but the sequel is so much more of a straightforward sort of. Um, uh, 
adventure movie, action movie. And it, all of the, what's going to happen? Something wonderful. Who's Something talking wonderful. to me? And I don't it, know. Then it takes Where a whole bunch of you? mushrooms. I'm already gone. I'm here. I'm there. I'm a baby. I'm an old man. <laughs> it just sort of didn't, it, it, it didn't feel like the container was the right shape for the mm. contents. And that made me a little sad this time. And it was probably as good of a job as anyone could do trying to marry those two things that you've got the very, um, uh, I don't know if you want to call it psychedelic, but way out there, man, sort of, um, uh, material and concepts fit into this, like, we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out why Hal did what he did. We're going to figure out what happened to everyone. And it's going to blow our minds. But in the end, it's like, it, it doesn't... It's hand-wavy. It is it is hand-wavy. Yeah. Well, I was, I was trying to describe it to the boys. They, they said, you know, what are you doing this movie? And I said, well, you know, well, so 2001, there's a reason... Whatever I feel about it, there's a reason that's one of the greatest films of the 20th century. And as Steve Lutz would say, 2010 is also present. Mm -hmm. Mm. As much as I'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think it suffers from nothing. The the biggest thing it suffers from is being a sequel to 2001. If that other movie didn't exist, this would be, I think, thought of better. But it is. I like it. Uh, In the book, by the way, what happens is that, uh, and this is, if they made this today, this is what they would do. In the book... Um, Floyd is in sitting there and it, you know, it's the discovery. So it's been there a long time and it's dusty and there's dust floating everywhere. And all the dust slowly just coalesces into a humanoid shape mm. that kind of looks like Dave Bowman. And I always pictured that and I'm like, that would be super terrifying, but they could not have done yeah. that yeah. in this, uh-huh. in, in, in this period. So they do it this way. And it, and it's, you know, I, I, I like it. I don't love that moment where we cut back. Roy Scheider kind of goes, huh? And we cut back and there's a star baby. <laughs> it's, it's a baby staring at him <laughs> with a sort of, I don't know, man. That, that, I, I don't like that as much as I like the fact that, that Dave in the space who goes around the corner and it's Dave in the kind of like black smock or whatever. When we get around the other side where it's like, whoa, this is super weird what's going on here because it's a ghost of a guy who disappeared in the last movie and he's back now. Yeah, it is super weird. I get it. The, the way that this The way that this movie starts out is almost like a reboot of a franchise but at the same time serving as a sequel and and i think having to balance those two things is what upon multiple rewatchings of it this is the third time i've seen this movie this year um it, it's part of what makes it I, I my heart goes out to peter hyams because i know that he was a huge fan of the original movie and at once very devoted to clark's vision of where he wanted the story to go and in trying to compose this sequel cinematically, he was having to mesh together two things that that were, uh, you know, conventional versus quantum physics. Um, and it 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 cannot it cannot help but feel like there's an ill fitting juncture of the two, especially as you get here toward the end where it suddenly steers hard into the Kubrick end of things. Yeah. Yeah. You got your Kubrick in my. <laughs> In the end, this is, you know, the, the ticking clock here is supplied by the monolith, which is yeah. uh, Dave Bowman <laughs> appears as a ghost and says, OK, look, something is going to happen. Something wonderful. Uh, but you got to leave. You got to leave in two days. And they're like, well, we, we have this launch window. We're all both going to go back in 30 days and all that. Um, and he's like, Mm-mm, two days. You got to get out of here. Maybe I'll send a message after that. Goodbye. You got to go. And that leads to a great scene where. 
because remember the ties have been cut between the u.s and the soviets at this point where we see uh haywood floyd just in a spacesuit headed over to leonoff and he's like um, i'm coming over <laughs> clear everybody out we're gonna talk uh even and they're like you can't this is and he's like i'm coming over <laughs> and he <laughs> and uh and they have their they have their conversation which is uh where he says you wouldn't even believe me if i told you um but we need to do this and then of course as they're having this conversation they look out the window and the monolith is gone and that's like okay let's do let's do what you were talking about uh something really <laughs> weird is going on everybody's like okay this is this is time they come up with their idea they're gonna hook uh the leonoff to the discovery use the discovery as a first stage discard it uh, he does this with the floating pins and zero gravity. Um, and then uh, they'll all take the ride home on, on Leonov. And that's how they'll get out of the vicinity of Jupiter before the ghosts and monoliths do whatever they're going to do in two days. Two of your Earth days, he doesn't say. Yeah, the the giant uh, Busby Berkeley number of su- super huge black dominoes tumbling out of Jupiter do whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, so so they 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 do this, and we already talked about Chandra talking to Hal and giving him a pep talk. And I wrote down, "This is why you don't have computers with opinions," because they have like they're like, "Well, we need to we need Hal to do this," and and they're like, "Will he?" And Chandra's like, "I don't know. <laughs> like, why? I maybe this is a bad idea to run a spaceship this way." They also have a conversation about hot dogs that I appreciate. Dark yeah. mustard. Every time. Dark <laughs> yeah. and, and the mustard. mustard. The darker, the Dark darker mustard, mustard is important. There's a lot of those. There's, there's the whole thing where where uh, Kerno talks about um about how he misses green. Mm-hmm. That is a nice little moment that doesn't need to be in the movie, but it's a nice touch. The the uh, the, uh, the little things that they've got going on. Um, and then and then we see that moment where it's like, oh, uh, oh, actually, I think Floyd gets a gets a note back uh from his his uh successor who's like yeah here's those schematics about the stresses that can be put on the discovery but i don't know why could you tell me why you want those and by the way there's this <laughs> which which they don't <laughs> i still haven't heard from you but there's this dark spot on jupiter could you check that out and they look and it's like there's a there's 1.3 million monoliths on jupiter and they're they're multiplying once every two minutes it's like that seems bad that, okay, and, all those questions we had, let's throw them out of the space window and just uh, let's get let's get a move on. I, and I love this moment in the movie. Honestly, I'm I'm curious what everybody else thinks about it, but I love this moment in the movie because this is the reminder. Like, oh yeah, that monolith. It's super weird and we don't understand it and we don't know what it's doing and we are going to get caught underfoot and this is that moment where it's like well wait what now there's 1.3 million monoliths and they're they're reproducing they're you know they're dividing they're like a virus or like cells dividing uh this seems really bad and i like it because it's it, it it's that reminder that whatever this thing is we don't understand it and it could it again like the expanse it's very much like it's super dangerous it doesn't even care that we're here it is way beyond us we might want to get out of the way and it's a good moment it's a fun moment where it's like i wrote in all caps <laughs> ah, black spot on <laughs> jupiter model is ah. and the thing is they're all going to upgrade next fall so i'm just going to wait <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, that was but this you know, one's got USB-C, mm. David. <laughs> yeah. I love that it's eating Jupiter. I don't like that it's there's a million and a half of them and they're reproducing like a virus because it why would you need more than one monolith is my 
question. Yeah. It takes it from being, and again, this is, this is the seam. You're seeing the seam bet- between the Kubrick stuff and, and the more traditional storytelling, which is. Well, and it's, and it's Clark too, because this comes right out of the book and it's Clark wanting, to, Clark wants to, Clark wants to say that these are von Neumann machines, that they're mm-hmm. self-reproducing probes from another alien race and that they, this is their task that they're doing now. And they, and that's, that's the big science fictional idea that Clark wants to do. And so the movie does it. Whereas Kubrick would be like, no, it's a representation, a symbol, you know, right? Ever Clark's like, nope, it's a machine. A, a god. It is a doorway. It is a, th- it is uh, a ham sandwich. Yeah. Are it's... you getting it yet? It is, it's a doorway, a ham sandwich, <laughs> and a converter of planets into stars. It's all three in one. <laughs> I, it's a floor wax and wax. a dessert top. <laughs> I was going back to the, I, the iPhone thing again. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I thought this was, I thought this was effective. I, I, I think Von Neumann machine was the only thing I remember from reading the book because uh, yeah. it's been so long. But mm. when I was a, a kid, this this hit me because it's so weird. It's not this isn't the Death Star. It's not no. the monolith firing a laser at Jupiter or something like that. This is uh, evolution. the mass of Jupiter. Who would have thought of like, oh, well, what they're going to do at the end of this movie is eat a planet. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, what? It, it, and it's weird because it's like they're they're doing stuff that defies the laws of physics because these are machines that are reproducing but also increasing the mass of the planet. But it's like, that eh, doesn't make any sense if they're consuming material on the planet because the conservation of mass it'd just be the same but it somehow is uh creating such a concentration that it's going to cause the planet to collapse in on itself by the end of the film um so it's a it's an interesting and novel thing to do uh so i appreciate that uh it's not um i don't know probably the most revolutionary idea but it's it's better than a laser at the planet the details are great the fact that the, the cloud formations start to move towards the spot that the color is fading mm-hmm. like and you they did a good job on that that yeah it looks like the the planet's just sort of like getting drained and eaten and turning itself inside out and that i remember it being very very creepy um it wasn't quite as creepy this time but yeah. it, it's it's good it's good details it's really good details yeah, I mean, once you know that they're eating a planet and going to poop out a star, it's not <laughs> as terror-inducing, but it... it Look, the, Moy says every the, monolith poops. Every <laughs> monolith poops. That's, that's, the, that's the thing you've got to really face up. But the, the, thing, the, thing, uh, the thing that uh, I, I find people often roll out about, you know, uh, 35-year-old movies is that, you know, this and that about the effects and nitpicking the effects... This particular sequence, uh, I feel like, holds up really quite well. Um, I think I, I think that the the way that it's composed, it looks good. I mean, you know, yeah, there there are various kinds of seams that you can see on stuff like this, but it's still in the proper presentation. You know, as in not like off of a DVD or a VHS or something, but in in high definition, this this piece of of, of it still really looks really good. If you ask well, me. And the directing is amazing at this point that, that you've got the different shots of their, they're trying to get away. They, they can't speed up and, and, and every, the, the, the ship is like trying to shake itself apart and, and the, the wave is coming for them. And at the same time, and they're all yelling things at each right. other. Chandra and, waits to the last minute and almost doesn't get into the, into the which Leon I don't under, I don't know why he, it was like 30 seconds and he's just sort he's of sauntering there, out the yeah, door. I, mm. <laughs> Like, I, I get that he doesn't want to leave hell, but come on. That, that that was done, I think, for no other reason than to just build the tension up. Peter Himes does a really good job with the tension of this scene. I guess this this is the moment where I will mention Peter Himes, you know, he made he made a bunch of other movies. I like Outland. Mm-hmm. 
which is uh, which was three years earlier. I suspected is how he got this job, um, which is Sean Connery in Outland is literally a remake it's, of High Noon. It's high Noon in space. In space. <laughs> yeah, on, yeah. space. On IO, no less. So it it's is. Al- it, it's always High Noon in space. Yes, it's a good movie. <laughs> I like I like Outland. Uh, it's very tense and very well well done here. Um, and then. So yeah, uh, it's bizarre. Jupiter shrinks and explodes and turns into a star, and they all grab hold, and it doesn't destroy the discovery or the the Leonov. After all, it does destroy the the discovery. They receive Hal's last message as dictated by whatever was Dave Bowman, which is all these worlds are yours, presumably all the the uh, planets around Jupiter except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Uh, use them together, use them in peace. A uh, heavy-handed final set of lines added for the movie by Peter Hyams to, to point to out drive that it home. I don't don't love the the addition there, but I do like the weirdness of like they're trying to protect Europa because there's another that that is another touching back to 2001. There's another life form that's coming up there that they're going to take care of. Um, things wind down. The seeing the new sun and all of that, and receiving Hal's message, they. Uh, they make peace, or at least they they stop from being almost in in a war footing. And the final uh, narration is a note from Haywood Floyd to his son, um, and it is not my favorite thing in the movie because um, at one point he says, "I don't know what the monolith is. I think it's many things. Here's a list of all the things the monolith is." And I'm like, "No, don't." No, yeah. no, and we see them together, presumably on the beach there, and and uh, he refers to uh, us as the tenants of this world, and we just got a note from the landlord, which is not really a metaphor that I I think works, and I don't like that part either. I, I'm not not a fan of this of this final narration uh, at all, but there but, it is. But it's okay because and, they go search for Spock the next time. It's it's fine. Yeah, but. But actually, I really like the very last shot in the movie, which is Europa thaws under the warmth of its new sun and waiting in the swamps of Europa for the next intelligent life form to to touch it is a monolith like at the beginning of 2001. I really like that. I think that's a great ending that the idea that it's it's the monolith waits again for the next life form to emerge. I think that's pretty cool. Although it's again not really tied to this movie. It's really about the last movie, but it's yeah. a cool ending and they it's play a great the moment, Strauss but and my they, whole oh, family walked that way. <laughs> it's just like the end of Wrath of Khan. It's just yeah, in well, the trees. True too. It's a black thing. The Spock's inside there. the monolith all along. We didn't even know. But now it's going to be chlorophyll femurs. Um, <laughs> so it'll be different. I want to know what having two suns is going to do to Earth's ecosystem. And and there's this th- this very florid sort of narration from Floyd ab- about the children of one sun and the children uh, of two suns, and they'll never know a time when it wasn't dark. And I'm thinking uh, everyone's going to go insane. Yeah, also, <laughs> Jupiter, also Jupiter's in the outer solar system. It stays on one side for a long period of time it shouldn't it should also i i think it, maybe it's in the book but somebody did the math and it's like it, it wouldn't be that different it would be bright but it's so it's small and far away so it would not be like a dramatic change okay. it would be in, intergalactic in light pollution like but having would, a walmart yeah. built across the highway <laughs> from your house <laughs> it would be the same kind of light pollution as the as the full moon is or less than the full moon i think is what they were saying it's not going to be like full-on i don't know any anyway i I, I like all that tension and the Haywood Floyd narration at the end just kills me. That whole, <laughs> yeah. like, 
like some some of the letters home I like because I think they serve to do a lot of heavy lifting in the exposition and move the film along. But the one at the end is so it's just so heavy handed, and I just uh, it's the one at the end. What it does for me, Jason, is. it makes me dislike Haywood Floyd even more than I already did. <laughs> and I really, I really, I really, I disliked him in 2001. And now watching an entire movie with him as the pivot protagonist, I just, uh, I, I am, I, I cannot say a single thing that I like about him in terms of, you know, I, I it's, it's more that I tolerate him because the rest of the movie happens around him, but he just, I, there's, there's nothing, he's, he's annoying to me the whole time. Hmm. Uh, I keep hmm. wanting him to fall out of an airlock somehow. <laughs> wow. I, I like it, but, uh, I do agree that the, the letters home, uh, I don't love all of them and they yeah. are, especially because I think a part, some of it has to do with David Shire leans on a synthesizer every time mm. there's a letter home. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> right. that, it doesn't, you know what? I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you might be onto something. <laughs> yep. And yeah, a lot of it, it's just like you like the details and you really wanted to put all the details in and you wanted to show us that you did your homework and here's what a balut is and yep. all of this. And we don't need it. And we don't, you know, I think a lot of it is just not trusting yes. the audience. Um, and wanting to explain things to the audience. And I think that more than anything, I think is what, what this movie suffers from is this need to explain things that, that don't necessarily need explaining, but that is sort of the reason, the entire reason for the movie's <laughs> existence. So I also get that it was sort of like the hazard of making the movie. I, I agree. And I feel like there's, there's something of a balance to be struck where you can either go full on didactic, beating the the audience over the head with a hammer double and triple underlining things um and then there is going far too far to the other direction and just letting it be very um open to interpretation and non-specific for the sake of effect um but th- there's 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 a fair amount in this that's like get it get it guys we're saying this yeah like we've just seen all of these weird things that happen around the monolith I don't need Haywood Floyd's list right. of literally everything the monolith is. Like, I liked it when he was, I don't know what the monolith is. Like, yes, stop there. <laughs> don't, don't say it. Don't. No, here he we should, go. Here's he the should, list. He should save it for his tell-all book. Here's what the monolith is by Haywood Floyd. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, it'll get him, it'll, it'll get him the talk show circuit after he leaves his position as the president of the University of... D- dolphins and radar of dishes telescope polishing <laughs> yeah it could be i think it's many things it's just because because that's the that's the thing like i don't i we, we all have to get over the fact that that this is the sequel to this famous movie right like that that is always going to be the burden here but the the mistake that this movie makes at a few points is and especially at the end is just because we want to see what happens next and maybe get some other ideas about why things happen the way they did in the first movie all right doesn't mean that at the end of the movie the main character lists all of the answers like it's the literally it's the answer key in the back of the book like i don't need it like i saw the movie i get that the model is super weird and we don't understand it because we're puny humans and now it's going to be on europa and isn't that interesting i don't need the it's i think it's a door and i think it's a tool and i think it's a message and i yeah we got it we saw the movie so a doorstop yeah, it could be anything, right? Is there a lightning port on there or not? We don't know. <laughs> Does it charge inductively? Well, let's so let's let's add it up. Like the the this movie, what makes this movie good? Um, 
the cast is good uh the rapport mm-hmm. between uh max and kerno is really great um there are a lot of tense bits the a lot of the space stuff is really pretty i think this is a good movie i think this movie doesn't get discussed as a good movie because of the baggage of being the sequel to 2001 but i think it's a good movie i think for a mid-80s sci-fi movie it's actually quite good oh, yeah. because yeah. it's smart i mean it's no black hole <laughs> <laughs> well, the black hole you say no. that would be an interesting movie to cover um mm. anyway so i mean we're, we're kind of wrapping it up now but like having having revisited the, this again i was i was happy to revisit it again it is uh i i enjoyed watching it again which you know you always when you rewatch you're like uh is this going to be was this a mistake and uh i actually i really enjoyed watching it so how did uh how did everybody else feel about watching this time how what, what's your what's your verdict i guess we'll just go around helene how did you feel this time you know i felt good that i i realized that i had good reason to like this movie as much as I did when I was younger. Um, some of that now, maybe the shine is a little off. Some of it I better appreciate because I can see how they're doing what they're doing. Um, I feel like th- the movie is the entire purpose of the movie is to find closure for the first movie. And that is sort of a shame um, because of the things that I said before about how it's just a different shape container for the stuff it's trying to put in it. Yeah. And, the, and this seems do show, but at the same time, just the cast is so good. There's so much oomph that everyone is just sort of giving to propel this movie forward. Um, the characters are fantastic. Some of the writing is good. Some of the writing isn't so good. Yeah. Um, it's it's sort of this very interesting grab bag that when you put it all together equals something that I'm not even sure what, but I like it. <laughs> and yep. that's all, you know, if that's what a movie gives me, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. David? Well, I'm, you know, I've, I've joked in the past about the first movie being the longest, most expensive first act because, you know, it doesn't really tell you anything. It sets up a really interesting story. And the thing I like about this is that it does give you a story. Does it do it as well? Is it as well written? Could it be tighter? Uh, yeah, it could be a better movie, but it's a good movie. I like it. I don't not like it. Uh, you know, and and the cast is just so good. Mm. Yeah. I mean, oh, Peter Hyams, not the best writer, not the best director. But, you know. What about the director of photography? Yeah. He's a really good director of <laughs> all the pieces. He might, he might be one of the best too. directors of Jean-Claude Van Damme films. Well, you know. And, but but well. the thing is, you know, whatever whatever the merits of this film, this is like making Casablanca 2. You could make the very best Casablanca 2. It's still going to be 2. It's still yeah. not going to be yeah. the original. It's still, no matter how different you make it, no matter how similar you make it, it's not going to be the same. And so, yeah, you're... You're setting yourself up for disappointment. It's good. It's not great. I have to admit that when I 
was listening to the incomparable, uh, the episode of 2001. And I'm listening to all of these, you know, very, these voices that I've listened to for long times talking about this movie and, and, and talking about the, you know, people with this history of this movie and, and, and the exegeses that were coming from, uh, you know, Dr. Drang and, and various other people. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be on the 2010 episode. <laughs> <laughs> I have to how am I gonna how am I gonna match that and I realize you know what it's not that kind of movie <laughs> I'm gonna do what 2010 does I'm not gonna match it I'm gonna stay in my lane I'm going to talk about a middle brow pretty good movie yep. and you know what there you are <laughs> uh, Joe what do you think of and revisiting 2010 um I, uh, I, I I don't know how much of this is influenced by when I saw it as a kid so I'm more comfortable with certain things about it but it, it is uh still an interesting movie it's a it's a decent movie uh i i think it's fascinating to watch um for those comparison reasons but also in its own um choices that it makes as a film uh so i i i would recommend seeing it especially if you are at all a fan of science fiction i i think that it's it's worthy of that even if you don't like the stuff that's in it and you do wind up critiquing several things like as we have all done as we do um, for this past period of time yeah mm-hmm. and moises i feel like as somebody who identifies as a big big huge fan of 2001 I don't have the same kind of adversarial opinion about the movies where you you are either in one camp or another. It's perfectly fine to like them both. They're both actually very different movies. Uh, and if, if nothing else has come across from this discussion, I, I hope that gets across that maybe 2001 is not for you, but you like space movies and you like some of the stuff that is covered in 2001, but the delivery method just doesn't work for you. In that case, 2010 might actually be a much better experience for you. 2010 is also a movie that really relies a great deal on your first introduction to it, which is kind of similar to 2001. 2001, if you're introduced to it at seven years old uh, and, you know, told that you have to stop fidgeting and watch it the entire time and not take any breaks, maybe you're not going to enjoy 2001 that much. Uh, 2010, if 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 you are just seeing it in the wrong setting, um, I, I think that that can affect it for you, too. Uh, 2010 might actually be a really great Saturday afternoon on TNT movie um, in terms of the ideal first way to encounter it, where it's not hyped up for you. It's not slagged uh, as being, you know, a pale imitation of what came before. I, I feel like not lowering your expectations, but just just putting the whole expectation game aside and just going, hey, it's a space movie. It's good. It's got a really good cast. It's got some fun stuff in it. Um, it it's it's fine. It's not great. It's totally fine and oh man have there been so many bad space movies that <laughs> right. there are some days when i just go you know what i would just like to watch a space movie that's just fine just perfectly fine well it's like both movies have brains in them which is more than you can say about most sci-fi films and it's just one is a very intellectual brain and this one is smart it's smart well, as um, I'm going to I'm going to quote from Roger Ebert's review where he says uh, you have to make some distinctions in one category. 2001 remains inviolate. One of the handful of true film masterpieces in a more temporal sphere. 2010 qualifies as superior entertainment, a movie more at home with technique than poetry, with character than with mystery, a movie that explains too much and leaves too little to our sense of wonderment. But a good movie all the same. 
I I read this today and I thought, yep, that's exactly how yep. I feel about it. Yep. That's exactly yeah. right. It's that's it's like fun. it's yep. hard. You got to set two thousand one aside and say this is a good movie. Is it is it <laughs> anything like two thousand one? Whatever you feel about it, no, it is not. That's not not it's not even trying. <laughs> I, it, like the, there there is kind of a similar dynamic between Alien versus Aliens, where they're yeah. two rather different approaches to. The same world, the same universe. And I, this movie would not exist were it not for the fact that Arthur C. Clarke really did have co-ownership over 2001, and he wanted to tell another story in that world. And and if, if it, I would also feel differently about this if this was very much like a movie studio saying, you know, we could make a sequel to 2001, let's come up with something, than having the guy who came up with the story with Stanley Kubrick say, I want to tell another story. I want to talk. I have lots of thoughts about what happened in the first movie, and I have lots of thoughts about where it might go next. And he decided to to do that. And so I feel like he has the right, he ha- you know, Arthur C. Clarke had the right to do that. And uh, and this is a a pretty good, although, again... I love the book a lot, so like not not by no means perfect, but it's a it's a good movie and it's a fun movie and and it does it does what it's trying to do and it's not trying too much and that's that's fine. I believe we have reached the end. Uh, Dave and Hal's final message is is scrolling. Uh, apparently, we need to use them together and use them in peace. So I would like to thank my guests and then we will say goodbye <laughs> for now to the monolith and uh, 2010. David Lore, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm I'm afraid I can't say any more, Jason. Mm. Uh, Helene Wecker, thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and you know I am full of stars. <laughs> oh, hey. oh my god! Hey. Oh my Joe god. Rosensteel, thank you. Are you sure we're making the right decision? I think we should stop. <laughs> I think we should continue <laughs> with the podcast now. Uh, and Moises Chuyan, thank you, Jason. When I found out you were doing an episode on 2010, I. I said aloud, you have been drinking your whiskey from Kentucky, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode. Uh, All these podcasts are yours, except Europa. Attempt no listenings there. We'll see you next week. My God. It's full of stars.